to join me this evening in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7, and we'll be looking through chapter 4, verse 11. Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 11. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom he was angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter, enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we have just sung and the truths of these songs that we have sung, we do reach forward to reach paradise. We long for the day when the church victorious will be the church at rest. 
when our faith will be sight, when our sanctification will be glorification, when all that God has promised will be fulfilled. And even as we long for that day, we know that you have given us all that we need. We know that you will sustain us because you have equipped us, even here and now, for the work at hand. We pray that you would be honored, that you would be lifted up this evening as we look to your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. During the course of this series on the church, even as we just did tonight, we have sung the song, The Church's One Foundation, several times. The song was written by Samuel J. Stone. It was published in 1866. In 1860, there had been a major controversy in the Church of England as John William Colenso, the Bishop of Natal in South Africa, wrote a book that attacked the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. He called Joshua a myth. He called the books of Chronicles fictitious. He even disputed the accuracy of Christ's statements about Moses in the New Testament. This caused an uproar, and many demanded, rightfully so, that such a man should not be a leader in the church. Bishop Colenso was deposed for his heresy, but he appealed to a secular court which reinstated him. As you can imagine, the result was a schism in the South African church. Reverend Samuel Stone was a pastor in England, and he was so upset over this controversy that allowed heresy into the church. And as he saw this, this controversy that was going on across the world in South Africa, he looked at his own congregation, and he saw that even in his own congregation, the problem was that people didn't understand what they believed. They would quote the Apostles' Creed, but it was, it was empty. No one, no one understood it, could explain it. And so it was under these circumstances that Samuel Stone decided to write 12 hymns in, ex, in explanation of the Creed, and also in defense of the inspiration of the Bible. The Church's One Foundation is the ninth hymn in Stone's collection, and it deals with the unity of the Church. In fact, the circumstances under which this hymn was written are seen very clearly in the hymn itself. Specifically in verse 3, as we just sang, which says this, Though with scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, but soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In the midst of so much trouble, in the midst of this heresy that had infested the church, Mr. Stone looked forward. And in verse 4, Stone uh, moves from the present turmoil to the future hope. And he ends verse 4 with this line. It's probably my favorite line of the song. It starts with this. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. How we long for that day, do we not? Mm -hmm. The church at rest. 
And the church victorious is the church at rest. And this evening I want to bring our series on the church to a close by considering this truth. The church at rest. What is the church at rest? What does this look like? As we've been working our way through this series, we started by looking at the church promise in Matthew 16. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Then in Acts 2, we see the church established. In Ephesians 2, we see the church's sure foundation, Christ alone, the chief cornerstone, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we looked at what is the makeup of this church. And the church is for the redeemed. Well, then what is the church's purpose? What are we to do? And we saw the church gathers, the church grows, the church goes. Well, how is this church organized? How is it to be organized so that it can accomplish this purpose? And we saw the church offices and pastor and deacon. Why does the church need to accomplish this? And we looked at the church ordinances, which remind us of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, what does it look like when the church accomplishes its purpose well. We looked at the church thriving. What does it look like when the church encounters hardship and we looked at the church suffering? And this evening we'll see what does it look like when the church has accomplished its goal? What is promised to the church? And we'll see the church at rest. The reality is that it is easy to be driven of course. What happened in South Africa in 1860 has happened time and time again throughout the, church, throughout the church's history. Samuel Stone was wise in his defense of the truth, to, to defend the truth by stressing doctrinal purity rooted in the inspiration of the Bible. This same battle made its ways to American shores not long after, in the early 20th century, what we call the modernist fundamentalist divide. In fact, fundamentalism was born out of the defense of the truth, very much like Samuel Stone's defense in England. The reality is that the church must defend and proclaim the inspired word of God. The church must understand the sure foundation on which she stands. The church must understand who she is and what she is called to. The church must thrive even in the midst of suffering and the church must cling to what has been promised to her. This evening as we look at the church at rest, this is what we're looking at. What has been promised to her? What are we longing for? What are we waiting for? See, rest follows work. And when the church's work is done, what happens next? What has been promised to the church? What is the church's inheritance? We're going to start this morning, this evening, by looking at verses 7 to 19 of uh, Hebrews um, 3. And what we're going to see is the principle of rest. When we talk about the church at rest, what is this rest? What are we talking about? 
And before we get to this passage in Hebrews 3, I think it's important to, to back up because the, the idea of rest begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Rest in, the Bible's care, rest in the Bible carries the idea of completion, of something that is finished. We see in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, on the seventh day of creation, when creation is done and everything is good, God rested. His work is done, and His work was good, and there was nothing more to do. And notice that God's rest came at the end of His work, at the end of the creation week. God did not rest on day three, but on day seven. Rest is not a break. Rest is a job completed. In Exodus 20, verse 8, once again, we see this principle of rest continued in the fourth commandment. Where every seventh day, God's people are to finish their work for the week and to rest. And again, we see the idea that this rest comes at the completion of a week when the work is done. In Numbers 14 and even uh, future in Psalm 95, we are told about a generation who rejected God in the wilderness and therefore could not enter God's rest because of their unbelief. In those passages, rest is associated with the land that God has promised them. And the punishment for their unbelief is that they would not receive that inheritance. They would not cease from their endless wandering. There would be no rest for them. They were doomed to wander for the rest of their lives. It's important to note even in that the mercy of God. It's important to note that this specific disobedient generation is the one who would not receive rest. Who would not receive the inheritance that God had promised. The next generation would. Their sin had dire consequences, but God remains faithful despite their unfaithfulness. In Deuteronomy 12, verses 9 and 10, Moses calls the people to continue to be faithful, to be committed to the task at hand, because their rest had not yet come. Moses encourages them that this rest is coming, but it's not here yet. Now is not the time to rest. Rest would come when they'd crossed the Jordan. Rest would come when they'd taken possession of the land that God had promised them. And again, in this passage, we see the continued principle that rest follows finished work. You come to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua is the pursuit of this promised rest. They cross the Jordan. They take possession of the land. In fact, rest is a key theme in the book of Joshua. Earlier this year, we worked our way through the book of Joshua, and we spent some time explaining rest. Rest in Joshua is the idea of to, to cease from combat, to enjoy the inheritance of the land. Rest in Joshua does not come until the conquest is complete. In fact, we're first introduced to the concept of rest in Joshua chapter 1. As Joshua approaches the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These tribes had already received their inheritance. Their inheritance was on the eastern side, on the other side of the Jordan. They hadn't even crossed the Jordan yet, and they had received their inheritance. They had already taken possession of the land promised to them. And yet Joshua goes to them and reminds them of their responsibility 
their responsibility. You cannot rest until we all rest. Rest can come for no one until rest comes for everyone. Because the job must be completed. Rest does not come before a finished job. The principle of rest is carried on throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. The New Testament carries forward this idea of rest, perhaps most triumphantly in Christ. In Hebrews 1, 1 to 14, and in uh, Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14, you tell us that Christ rested after his death, resurrection, and ascension. His work was completed as he proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. There's nothing more for Christ to do. And therefore he sat down at the right hand of God. The gospel news is great news for sinners like us. Because the work is finished. There's nothing that we can add to what Christ has done. It is done. The law has no more power and death has no more sting for those who are in Christ. Because Christ has completed his task. In Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews, much like Moses, in the wilderness, as we saw in Deuteronomy 12, calls for the church to persevere. As we come to this passage this evening, we see a call to persevere. Because your work is not yet done. But rest is coming. But it's future. In fact, I invite you to join me here in Hebrews 3. And as we come to this passage, we will see that the idea of rest has always had a greater rest for God's people. A rest that looks beyond temporal blessings into eternity. In fact, we'll see that the rest brought to Israel by the conquest of the land was merely an, early, an earthly foretaste of a heavenly reality a greater promise. And as we turn our attention to Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19, the author of Hebrews begins with a warning. Do not be like the Israelites who came out of Egypt. They did not enter God's rest. In fact, several times throughout this passage, he says, they will not enter my rest because they have failed. They failed to believe. They failed to persevere. They did not enter God's rest because they did not persevere. In fact, the author goes on to make it clear that they did not persevere because they did not believe. This passage is similar to passages like Philippians 2.12 where Paul encourages the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Peter 1.10, where Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This passage here at the end of, of chapter 3 of Hebrews is a warning to persevere. Brothers and sisters in Christ, persevere. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Beware, brothers. Beware. Pay attention, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Beware. 
Be mindful. Pay attention. Be honest with yourself. Guard yourself. Search your heart. Not only guard yourself, but look out for one another. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Guard yourself, guard one another. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Guard yourself, guard one another, because we must endure. Fight for your brothers and sisters in Christ so that no one may fall away. This morning in Sunday school, Jim talked about the different uh, grounds that the seed falls on. Mm -hmm. How worldly pleasures, Mm -hmm. worldly uh, concerns so often chokes us, drives us astray. Guard yourself and guard one another. Persevere. In fact, brothers and sisters, I would call you this evening to honestly search your heart and examine your life. Is your calling and election sure? This evening, don't simply hear this warning and let it roll off like like water off a duck's back, but pause and consider. Be honest with yourself. Don't be like the Israelites who came out of Egypt. They saw God do some amazing things. Things that you and I cannot fathom, and yet their lack of perseverance testified to their lack of faith in the end. Search your hearts. Pastor Johnson this morning mentioned how many of us, uh, it was during uh, Jim's Sunday School lesson, how many of us know people who started out so strong, and yet something came along, and led them astray. Something came along and knocked them off course. Brothers and sisters, we must persevere. I don't care if you have been coming to this church for 50 years or for six days. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 80 years or if you were just saved today. Heed the warning of Scripture here in Hebrews 3. And search your heart. Guard yourself. Be honest. Where is your hope today? Is your faith in Christ alone? That's the principle of rest. Next, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we see the promise of rest. There's a clear principle of rest in Scripture that rest follows completed work. And you cannot complete work if you do not persevere. We've seen the principle of rest in Scripture. We've seen the importance of perseverance to obtain rest. But what is this promised rest? What is it? In Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 11, the author stresses the means of obtaining this rest and the timing of this rest. 
Notice first that the means of obtaining this rest is the gospel. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Because they did not believe it. Because they did not believe it. The author of Hebrews assumes that his readers are believers since he is writing to churches. Therefore, he begins by encouraging them to persevere instead of encouraging them to believe. But here, as you come to chapter 2, he makes it clear that it is a faith in the gospel in which they must persevere. In fact, notice that the author of Hebrews here refers back to creation. In verse 4, for he has spoken at a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. God rested after his work was finished. When it was completed, when it was good. And so those who believe the gospel must persevere in the gospel. Like God who did not rest from his work until it was finished, so believers must persevere in their faith and in the work that they have been called to until it is completed. What the the author of Hebrews has in view here is progressive sanctification. It is what God is doing in those of you who are in Christ. It's what Ephesians 2, 8-10 says when it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Similarly, James says that faith without works is dead. There is an expectation that growth does not end at salvation, but begins at salvation. Good works cannot result in salvation, but they must proceed from salvation. We must grow. We must do what God has called us to. Until it is completed. Notice secondly that here in Hebrews 4 verses 6 to 11 that the timing of this rest is still future. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day saying to David, today After such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The timing of this rest is still future. As Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan into the land, if they took hold of the inheritance which God had given them as they obtained their rest, it was but a foretaste. It was not the final rest. There is a greater rest that still waits. Likewise, in David's time, even still, this rest was future. And now the author of Hebrews calls to us, even still, this rest is future. Won't you believe? Won't you persevere? Now, 
But notice also that God does not expect us to endure without equipping us to endure. I didn't read it, but the end of chapter 4 goes on. And as you look at the end of Hebrews 4, we see that we have both a powerful living word of God to guide us and a perfect high priest in Christ to sympathize with us and plead for us. God does not just call us to, to endure and then leave us to it. He's equipped us for it. I want to be here, clear here that the author of Hebrews does not imply that if you fail to endure, you will lose your salvation. That's not what he's implying here. That's not what he's saying. Rather, the implication is that if you fail to endure, it is because you never truly believed. It's not because God has failed you. It's because you never believed him. It's because you never placed your faith truly in Christ alone for salvation. Finally, we see the realization of rest. Finally, we come to our subject for the evening, the church at rest. We've looked at the principle from rest in Scripture. Rest follows completed work. We've seen the the need for us to endure. If rest follows completed work, we must complete our work before we can rest. We've seen the timing of this rest. It is future. But when exactly can we expect it? And what does it look like? The author of Hebrews doesn't tell us here in Hebrews. But the Bible tells us. In passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 5. This promised rest comes with Christ. And as Christ's return is imminent, so is this rest imminent. For the church, it begins at the rapture when our perishable bodies will be will put on imperishable, imperishable bodies. When this mortal body puts on immortality. When Christ comes for his church, our work will be complete and our progressive sanctification will become glorification and God will have completed in us what he began in us. That is when our work is done. That is when the church has completed its work. When the great commission has been fulfilled, that is when our rest begins. Brothers and sisters, as we have looked at this series on the church, as we've looked at what we are called to, at who we are, at the foundation on which we are built, on what we must doing, on what it looks like to thrive, on the, the fact that we must endure, we must thrive even in the midst of persecution. I want to encourage you tonight with this truth, that the church will be victorious. It can be so hard day in, and day out. But the church will be victorious. For Christ is victorious. And the church victorious will one day be the church at rest. And even as we consider this, we proclaim with longing hearts, even so come Lord Jesus.
And brothers and sisters, until that day, we must persevere. We must complete what God has called us to, because God will complete in us what he has begun. So when is this rest? Well, it comes when Christ comes back for his church. What can I do about it now? You can search your heart. You can be honest with yourself. You can hold one another accountable. And you can persevere. This evening we're going to close our series on the church by standing together and singing uh, together once more the triumphant hymn, The Church's One Foundation.